me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 49 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. On this episode, I'm joined by my guest Bruno McDonald, an author of many different music books, including his latest 666 songs to make you bang your head until you die, a guide to the monsters of rock and metal. He is a longtime fan of the genre and a longtime fan of Metallica. We go into a lot of different things here, including talking about 12 of the 666 songs that Metallica makes up. And I will say this, no spoilers, but I will say this, they're not 12 of the most obvious choices. So we talk about that and a whole bunch more. Here is my conversation with Bruno McDonald. My guest today is the author of the book, 666 Songs to Make You Bang Your Head Until You Die, A Guide to the Monsters of Rock. He is also a longtime Metallica fan, and of course, he's a fan of heavy metal in general. Please welcome to Metallicast, Bruno McDonald. Bruno, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you so much for having me on, my show, on your show. I really appreciate it. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. We started talking a little bit on Twitter and... I stumbled upon your book through your tweets, and I was like, this seems like a really fun book. Got to have you on. Obviously, you're very passionate about music and about heavy metal in general. To write a book about 666 songs. Uh, so I'm interested where that fandom started. What What is your background with metal? My background with metal? Well, um, I, I grew up in England. I, I live in South Africa now. I grew up in England. And um, there was a, a British band called Status Quo, and right. they're, they're huge in England, and they're pretty big in Europe. I know in the States, they're, they're, they mean virtually nothing, but for a yeah. lot of people of my generation, they were like the gateway drug for getting into hard rock. Um, they, they were monstrously successful. I think they hold some sort of record for the most hit singles in, in Britain. And uh, oh, wow. it's, they were kind of like for, for listeners in America who are maybe not familiar with their stuff. Um, they were very much like our version of Credence. And in fact, one right. of their biggest hits was, was a cover of uh, Rockin' All Over the World by John Fogarty. And as I say, for a lot of people of my generation, because um, in Britain, I don't know, I don't know what it was like in, in the States at, at that point in, in uh, the late 70s and early 80s. Um, I guess that's before your time. Um, but in Britain, that, there were there were no opportunities really to hear um, hard rock and metal. Um, we had one radio show, a one nationally syndicated radio show, um, which dealt in that kind of music, which went out on a Friday night from 10 p.m. till midnight, and and that was it. Um, yeah, you, you, you weren't hearing hard rock and metal in any other context. So 
with bands like Status Quo, and then when the new wave of British heavy metal came along in 79, 80, and all of a sudden bands like Iron Maiden um, started getting um, exposure on TV, and then um, some of the, the older bands like Rainbow, for example, they, they started having hit singles. So there was a little bit of a sea change there, but it was still right. very much a minority interest. And, uh, and so it kind of felt like uh, you were joining a kind of exclusive club in sure. a way. Yeah. And that had such a pivotal effect on me, as I'm sure it did for, for thousands of others. Um, but even as I hurtle towards middle age now, I still feel like that excited, you know, 10, 11 year old that I was when I first heard those songs. That's awesome. That's a really interesting response because like you said, status quo here in America, they're, they're definitely a cult band, definitely kind of like a footnote in our history. They're the type of band that, you know, Lars Ulrich mentions in an interview and it's one of those obscure British European bands, you know, where you're like, like, oh, yeah, I, I know the name. and But you have to really seek it out if you want to check it out. It, it's up there with, you know, like the Diamond Heads and a lot of that uh, new wave of British heavy metal that came up in the late 70s, early 80s that Lars was super into. I think La- Lars has single handedly kept alive the careers of so many of those bands. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, so many of those bands, and I think they acknowledge it, particularly the guys in Diamond Head. They're really, they're always, um, they, they never seem resentful that, that a yeah. lot of their, you know, a, a lot, the reason people know them now is because of Lars. And, uh, and, and I, think, I think that's good. I, it, it would be easy for those guys to, to say, hey, but we've been doing this for 40 years and we were doing it for 10 years before Metallica right. came along. But they yeah. actually seem grateful and i think um you know lars gets um a lot of criticism in all kinds of areas a lot of which i feel is unwarranted but one thing that i think no one can take away from him is that he is really a fan of this music and he's proved that decade after decade after decade i think he even at one point i think he and um uh jeff barton who is the british journalist who coined the phrase new wave British heavy metal. I think they actually put together a, a double album compilation, the two of them, um, as a means of um, immortalizing all this music that they love and also as a means of ensuring that those bands could get could get a, another payday from them. Yeah, and I think that's why the bands like Diamond Head were so uh, receptive. I mean, besides the money that was coming in, right, when they covered their songs and whatnot, which is a realistic part of it i think you know metallica helped out a lot of these bands financially when they covered their songs and recorded their music but i think the why the bands were so receptive to it was because lars is such a fan and it was not you know in a way it was never presented in a way where you know they were trying to deceive anybody as like or hide their influences it was they they fully with open arms embrace all their influences and really want to share it with the with the with the fans who have followed their career so you know where they come from i know for me personally you know i would have never heard of diamond head and a lot of other bands if i did not get into metallica but it made me you know go pick up lightning to the nations and all in and check out some of these more obscure bands that or at least in america more obscure bands and what's funny too is that uh diamond had just re-recorded with their current lineup 
a, a 40th anniversary edition of Lightning to the Nations, and they covered No Remorse on it. So in a weird way, history has come full circle. Yeah, that must be a lucky song, because if I remember correctly, am I right in remembering that Motorhead won their only Grammy for a cover of No Remorse? I I, I think I remember Lemmy complaining about that. He said, (laughs) won a major award is when we covered a Metallica song. Yeah, Um, I'm not sure if it was No Remorse or Sandman, because he did a Sandman cover, I think. But yeah, but you're right. I think the only Grammy was like a Metallica cover or I don't know if it was even a win. It might've been a nomination. It was like a Metallica cover. And I was like, that's got to eat you up a little bit, you know, (laughs) but at least I I guess at least they were recognized, but that speaks more to how out of tune uh, the Grammy organization is, I think more than anything else, at least when it comes to heavy metal music, even though I think they have gotten a lot better in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. And even though you know, uh, Len- Lenny was grumbling about it, but he he loved he loved um, Metallica, and they yeah. loved him. I mean, that was a, that was a, a really beautiful relationship that those oh, guys yeah. had. And um, there's uh, footage from um, uh, which tour is it? I can't remember. I can't. It's either Death Magnetic or, um, or 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 Madly in Anger, where they get Lemmy up on stage, and um, right. and uh, they play to quite obscure motorhead songs they don't do they don't do ace of spades they don't do overkill and and, and you can see seventeen thousand people standing in america in, a, in an american arena going yeah we're not entirely clear who this guy is and we definitely <laughs> don't know these songs but again that speaks to metallica really being fans of the music and not just doing the obvious stuff it's like this here's a guy we love and here's two songs that we genuinely love as well i, I think that's fantastic and um and again, you know, I don't want this to sound like the I love Lars podcast, but I do love <laughs> Lars. And, uh, and it's okay. Did, it's a Metallica podcast. We all love <laughs> Lars. <laughs> he, put in, he put in the the he put in the hours. He put in the money. He put in the work. You know, I mean, he 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 as it's a it's a tale that he often tells himself about um, trailing Metallica. Uh, sorry, trailing Motorhead around on a British right, tour. Yeah. And, and didn't didn't he throw up on Lemmy at one point? And, and, <laughs> I think uh, that yeah, I think that's the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. To, to also to go back for a moment about what you're saying with you know how things were really underground and not spread out with heavy music. I mean that was definitely the case in America. It still is. You know, I I was not born obviously in the late seventies, early eighties, but not much has changed in twenty twenty. And you know, it's obviously bands like Metallica have broken through, but those bands are few and far between. And with the exception of Metallica, they really have had their moments, you know, they, they've, they've crossed over and kind of sunk back into the underground, which it's, it, it, but I think that's what is the attraction. Like you were saying, you know, to this day with, you know, people like uh, to have it, people like to feel connected to it and it's such a passionate loyal fan base and it's hard to feel as connected to it when it's this big global thing which i think is why metallica has gotten the amount of criticism that they've gotten over the careers because it has become a big global thing and i think some people have are like no they were my bands they were they can't be everybody's band they were my band you know but i think that also just speaks to the passion and uh, loyalty that a lot of fans have in the heavy metal community. Yeah, I was thinking when when um, when I was thinking 
when I knew that I was going to be talking to you and I was thinking um, back to when I first even heard about Metallica. Yeah. And I think it was um, 1984. So I would have been 12, I think. It was, so it would have been when Ride the Lightning came out. And um, I'm sure you know the, the, the British heavy metal mag magazine, Kerrang! Of course, um, yeah. Um, that was the Bible for um, for us because that was where we got our information because you, you weren't going to read about it or hear about it anywhere else. Right. And um, so the first time that they really crossed um, my radar was was with this interview. Um, Kerrang! had this um, a, a writer called Xavier Russell who was the son of the um, film director, Ken Russell, who did the Who film, Tommy. Right, and yeah. Xavier Russell was the only writer on Kerrang! who championed thrash. And what it, it's, it's easy to forget now that um, thrash metal was received really, really badly by the traditional heavy metal community. They mm -hmm. weren't it was kind of like again this is before my time and and certainly before your time um the way that uh punk was received by fans of of rock in in the, in the 1970s so all the right. people who like zeppelin for example they viewed the advent of the sex pistols and the clash with complete horror you know yeah who are these guys this isn't music and that was very much the reaction of the metal community and all of the writers on Kerrang, um, except Xavier Russell, to thrash. They were. I remember um, they did this really snotty um, Janet and John guide to metal, <laughs> and they were trashing people like Slayer and probably wow. Metallica as well, but definitely Slayer. Yeah. Um, and I kind of felt the same way at the time because um, if your whole notion of heavy metal is is basically guided by uh, ACDC and people who sound like them. And then this band of like snotty little upstarts come along and they're playing, <laughs> they're playing. And again, at the time, it, it seemed really harsh and abrasive now because those songs, um, particularly the ones on, on Lightning, they're so embedded into, into our consciousness that we yeah. don't think of them as being controversial or abrasive or in your face because they're part of the fabric of our lives but at the time they were and um earlier on i mentioned um the bbc radio show the friday rock show which mm -hmm. was the only out the only national outlet for heavy music the the guy who presented that a dj called tommy vance he also he loved thrash metal but he had a really hard time overcoming the prejudices of his listeners who were still very much wrapped up in deep purple black sabbath and um zeppelin so well into the 1980s if kerrang or or the friday rock show tommy vance's show if they would hold a readers poll of what are the greatest songs of all time stairway to heaven and stargazer would probably win it right um, and that's and that's well after Show No Mercy has been released, it's well after Kill Em All has been released. And um, I think I've massively digressed from whatever point <laughs> I've This is so, great, though. No, this is great. Um, so reading this interview with um, 
with Metallica around the time that Ride the Lightning came out. I, I really, I don't know why this is stuck in my, my mind for decades, but I remember Xavier Russell saying to Lars, oh, you guys have, I don't know if he used the phrase sold out. He definitely used the phrase, phrase mellowed out. You've mellowed out. Um, you know, <laughs> where, where's all the thrash that you were doing on Kill 'Em All? Um, and, and so this is someone saying it to them on Ride the Lightning and, yeah. and sort of unwittingly prophesying, prophesying, what's the word? Prophesying um, all the criticism that they would get later in their career when they did the Black Album. People were right. already saying that in 1984. Oh, you've sold out yeah. because you're doing something different than what you did on your debut album. Um, and to me, um, that's one of the fantastic things about Metallica is that they don't do what you expect them to do. I love Slayer. Um, and I, I think that out of all of the, the big four's debut albums, I think that Show No Mercy um, holds up best all these years later. I think it's a superb album. And I think one of the reasons why it, it doesn't sound dated and it really holds up is that Slayer, and I say this with complete respect and love for Slayer, they then went on and did the same album another yeah. 12, 13 times. Um, they got it absolutely right the first time and then they did it over and over again. Whereas yeah. Metallica, in my opinion, didn't get it right with Kill 'Em All. I think Kill 'Em All is a good album. I don't personally think it's a great album. And the leap that they made from Kill 'Em All to Ride the Lightning, I, I can't think of another metal band who made such a huge leap from album one to album two. And and it's especially remarkable when you consider how young they were. Um, you know, I I, I I can't tell you exactly how old they were, but I have, a, I have a feeling that Lars and Kirk were like barely out of their teens when they did that. And you think that they really, those guys had something special. They really yeah. did. It, it's, they, they really, I remember Dave Ellison from Megadeth saying, there never really was a big four there was Metallica and everyone else because they were so much better than everyone else. And, yeah. uh, and I think Ride the Lightning really proves that. I'm yeah. sorry, I've completely forgotten what, I'll, what question you asked <laughs> Well, no, I, I, I was just going to say I 100% agree with what you are saying, and that is a big draw to me. Um, you know, I obviously love metal music. I love rock music. And there are bands that I like. I'm like, all right, there's no real big difference from album to album and and i can live with that you know you like a band for a certain sound but i appreciate and prefer bands generally speaking that are willing to take risk and a band like metallica definitely takes risk after risk and all while still sounding like metallica like load and reload still sounds like metallica to me but it's a very different sounding band than ride the lightning it's a very you know you can say the same thing about saint anger you can say the same thing about lulu and the symphony albums and everybody can have their own opinion on it and that's fine and i'm not saying you have to like it or dislike it or anything like that but the fact that they're willing to do those things is what i like and i would prefer to see a band take a chance and miss than to do the same album 15 times in a row and i think it's also um Again, this is going to sound like I'm a massive apologist for Lars and and for the band in general, and and I kind of am because because I think in a weird way, 
like like you were saying earlier um because they're so stratospherically successful yeah they, they attract more criticism than is justified and and uh one of the things which which used to get leveled at them um when by by people particularly the detractors of the black album is oh you know what would you know cliff burton would be rolling in his grave and it's like <laughs> clear if 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 Cliff had lived, then they would have done something like Lulu much sooner in their career, because <laughs> yeah. he was the one who was pushing them yeah. to do more esoteric things. So, um, you know, do you want more Lulu? I I, I agree with you that yeah. um, that that one of the great things about Metallica is their ambition, and you have to therefore accept that sometimes those experiments aren't going to work. Lulu didn't. I, 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 I am a kind of apologist for Metallica, and even I am not going to try and convince the world that Lulu is a great album. It's a really, really, it's a tough listen. And yeah. I, I like Lou Reed, and I like Metallica. In fact, I love Metallica, and I very much like Lou Reed, and I don't think that album worked. But um, what an amazing thing that they were prepared to try it. What I, it, it, it's just remarkable. It's it's yeah. um, you know I I kind of feel I feel bad for for Lou that it was so poorly received and that I think that was the last album in his lifetime and that's a that's an unfortunate note to go on to go out on. On the other hand, he does have a, an extraordinary legacy of his own and I don't think that one misstep at, at the end of it is going to tarnish that tarnish that legacy. I agree, and I think that. Um... I had a great point I was going to make, and of course my thought just went out the window. But I can only to... apologize. It's me <laughs> no. No, that's what I love about doing this podcast. Though, is talking to people like you that have you know this passion and this knowledge, and that you know we I like to go the Metallica is always the base, but I like to build off that base and go in different directions and you know and celebrate metal in general and rock in general. Um, but I think so you, um, was, was 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 Sandman your gateway into the band? Then? Yes, so I was a uh, I was in probably first grade. And my, I have two older brothers and they were, you know, had MTV on when I was playing with God knows what my Ninja Turtle action figures or something. And, uh, I remember, you know, having MTV on the background, seeing, I, there's certain moments that stand out to me. I remember seeing smells like teen spirit by Nirvana. I remember seeing Jeremy by Pearl jam. I remember seeing, um, MC hammer and like the whole, the whole spectrum. But I remember seeing, the Inter Samuel music video. And I remember thinking like, I kind of like this song. And then I would see, I had an older cousin who I'd go over, you know, their house for a holiday and he had Metallica and Iron Maiden stuff on his wall. And the skulls looked cool to me. And I remember seeing he had a, uh, the live shit, Benjamin purge box. Then, and I saw, it, I was like, Ooh, that's a word I'm not supposed to say, you know, my interest is, is getting there. And I had a friend who was the same age as me, but he always like his parents just let him do things that I always viewed as older kids were allowed to do. Like he could watch R rated horror movies. He could watch Beavs and butthead. He could 
buy any, you know, metal album he wanted. And, you know, and this was, and this is like second grade I'm talking about. So I was, you know, still with Ninja Turtles, as I said, but I remember he got me the cassette of the black album for a birthday present when I was in second or third grade. And I just like wore the cassette out and then, but I was young. I really had no clue about their history, but I loved that album. And then I remember hearing Until It Sleeps on the radio. And I was like, oh, Metallica has a new album coming out. And I was about to enter sixth grade. I was about to enter middle school. And I got my first CD player. Load was the first CD that I got. And then I kind of went back and I was like, oh, they have four other albums. And uh, and I explore their history from there. And just funny, I... I had the I've said this before, but I had an the opposite reaction as a lot of metal fans because when a lot of you know people who grew up with Kill 'Em All got load and they're like, "This is the same band." I got load, went back to Kill 'Em All, and I went, "This is the same band." <laughs> I remember holding up the album photos, and it's like, "All right, these guys are like you know smoking cigars and drinking martinis and wearing suits. These guys." look greasy long hair and you know like, i'm connecting all the dots and then i quickly educated myself and got you know found books and magazines about metallica and reading interviews and you know this was before the internet and um and just dove head first and then i remember getting ride the lightning master puppets and injustice for all all on the same day and i just binged those albums and I just uh, the rest is history and but it was really middle school that I took the deep dive and then and they were the they're still my all-time favorite band always I'm hosting this podcast but they were a gateway band to so many other things and you know by the time I was graduating high school I was you know listening to all kinds of thrash and death metal and black metal and uh, and, and various other subgenres and and of course I've always been a huge fan of the classic metal bands like Sabbath and all that great stuff too so, but they were just my gateway band to all of it. And uh, I will always be appreciative of that because, uh, you know, they led me down a road of playing music and going to music college and doing all this stuff. So I really credit them for all that as, as sparking that initial uh, fire inside me. I think it's, it's um, interesting when you talk about, um, as you say, you, you, you began with load and kind of worked backwards. And um, I think that's true for probably a lot of people it's certainly true for me because the because uh when i was a kid so i I was reading about metallica in 1984 but it was probably another couple of years before i actually heard them because um i wasn't going to hear them unless i actually sought them out um and at the time i've got um you know i've got whatever my allowance is at the time right and i'm i'm not going to fritter it away on an album just because Xavier Russell of Kerrang thinks it's good. Yeah. I'm going to go and buy uh, Pyromania or I'm going to go and buy in, in, in 1984 I bought um, Wendy O. Williams uh, solo album because Gene Simmons had produced it um, <laughs> because I thought well as a Kiss fan I know this is going to be good and I'm certainly not going to take a chance on these four guys from San Francisco who, who make this kind of punky racket yeah. um, so uh, I think the first song that I heard by Metallica was Disposable Heroes and I heard it um, there was um, another British rock DJ called Alan Freeman who had a mm-hmm. show that broadcast in London which is where I grew up and 
he played disposable heroes and that was a life-changing moment for me because um i think to this day that might actually be my favorite heavy metal song it's such an extraordinary song um, yeah and whenever they whenever they bust it out live now which they don't do very often i'm guessing they don't do it very often because i'm not a musician you are maybe you can tell me but i'm assuming that technically that song is pretty bloody hard to play and mm -hmm. um because it's so it's so long and it's so relentless you know it, it hasn't got like some nice quiet breakdown section it just it's just yeah beats you requires it requires a lot of stamina and a lot of down picking furiously without a break and even just like um in the guitar solo like i i've had I remember in high school, you know, I had a guitar friend who was extremely skilled beyond his years. One of the most, uh, you know, I went to music college. He was one of the most proficient guitar players I've played with to this day. And, and this was in high school. And he, I remember him learning like the, uh, you know, some of the solos off Master Puppets and everything. And uh, and and just being like, oh, like the, the sweep arpeggios in this part are fucking brutal you know and just like bitching about it so yeah it's definitely working i think for you know where where they are at in their career especially too it's a marathon on a sprint and they're playing two two and a half hours you know every night for you know two weeks at a time then yeah. you know they probably want to play songs like that sparingly <laughs> I included, um there's 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 12 metallica songs in in my book and disposable hero disposable heroes was by far the easiest choice with yeah. a couple of other albums you're thinking well should i put this in should i put that in with with master of puppets there was no question i was always going to go for disposable heroes partly because as i say it means so much to me personally it was the it was a song that made me a metallica fan and also because it is such an extraordinary song and i quote um cory taylor it, it's it, it as 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 metal fans know, we're obliged to quote Corey Taylor. <laughs> you can't have an opinion on something until you've until you found out what Corey thinks about. If it. it's not Lars, it's Corey Taylor. So, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and Corey says about that song, uh, he says that song is a clinic. He he said, uh, I can't play that song, and I can play everything. And yeah. you know, with anyone else, that would be bullshit. But if you watch Corey. Um, <laughs> performance he's, he, he can play anything he's, he's an yeah. extraordinary and i say this with total respect Corey is an extraordinary mimic as well as being a great artist in his own right yeah when he's playing people's songs you know he can play a pink floyd song perfectly he can play a metallica song perfectly and he says he can't play disposable heroes that's how good that song is um and so that was the first song i heard and then um, I think the first Metallica record that I bought was the uh, the 598 EP. Oh, um, wow, yeah. And I, and I bought that having absolutely no idea what it was going to sound like. Um, and and I still love it. It's it's um, it's one of my Metallica favorites. And um, and then so so then the, the um, so that come, comes out when I'm a fan, and then Justice comes out, and like every other um metallica fan I, I bought justice and i initially i was like what the hell <laughs> um, it, i mean it, it's it's hard to i was baffled it is it I, I, you know i was i i 
I can't think of another album um, that confused me that much because because it seemed so alien. The whole the whole it was so that really was harsh and abrasive. That album, mm-hmm. um, the the themes that they were talking about and the 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 construction of the songs and obviously the the production which we all know about which yeah um, been a you know a hotly contested issue for 32 years or whatever yeah um, that was that was really really odd but um, it was the sane yeah. anger of 1988 <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. and it was, it was it was such an odd gear change and um but um but just just going back a bit so um Metallica, I think, really uh, in in Britain, um, it was it was eighty six when they became a big deal, um, and it was um, even though at that point I was not myself a Metallica fan because I was still some months away from hearing Disposable Heroes. I remember them and Anthrax playing. Um, the Hammersmith Odeon, which is a, a you know a, a legendary venue in London, sure. and it was a huge deal that they sold it out because and it, and it's only um, it's it's three it's a three thousand seater it's a theatre not an arena, but it seemed such a even to to someone like me who wasn't a Metallica fan at that point it was such a huge deal that these bands that I'd read about um, could sell out the Hammersmith Odeon um doing this music which was as far from the mainstream as you could possibly imagine at that point um and uh i, I remember hearing um i think the, the bbc broadcast anthrax is set and it was it just sounded so exciting yeah. i just thought i really want to be part of that world because it was you you could you could hear how excited they were to be playing this venue where you know Motorhead's No Sleep Till Hammersmith was recorded. It really shone through in their performance, and there was so much adre- adrenaline and energy, and you could feel it sort of feeding back from the band to the audience. Um, and uh, and then when you know the, the Metallica's profile rose through 86 in Britain, as I guess it also did in America because they, they did the Aussie tour. Um, and so when um, the 598 EP comes out in, in uh, when was it, around June 87, I think, people were really primed for it then. And right. so uh, they got into, I think they got into the British top 30 with that, which again sounds unremarkable now. But at the time, that was huge. Yeah. That was huge. And then um, Justice comes along, and and Justice is a, a huge hit, um, without the benefit of any radio play whatsoever, um, and and even even more so in the states, where because yeah, although one became a kind of hit single of sorts, one wasn't a hit until a very long time after Justice had come out. Justice had already become like a huge platinum album in America well before one broke through. Again, I'm really sorry. I'm rambling up. <laughs> no, this is I, great. This is great. Trying to make. <laughs> <laughs> you are not rambling at all. This is great. So it's interesting, too, that you really loved the Garage album because I hear that a lot from people as like being their first album or an album that they still really gravitate to. I just, they, there's something really. Uh, like we were talking about before how they're fans and there's this passion. And whenever they cover 
this material i think it really comes through even you know uh, every time on garage inc on on the new recordings that they release on this one there and just all of it and i think that's why people there's a, a large percentage of the families that's really gravitating toward who who are really rooting for like another garage album you know they want another batch of covers and we've gotten a bunch in recent years as a b-side or on a compilation or um you know in a live setting it'd be great to get another set of studio recordings i think and uh and kind of bundle all the other one-offs uh, just like they did in the first go around on garage inc but that's it a would, yeah uh, i think um, the, the, the direction you know I, I i've got no more insight into this than anyone else has but the the things that they've been doing over the past couple of months um the uh the the benefit where they did that um uh, it was a mainly acoustic show and they did that whole new interpretation of disposable heroes yeah and then um last night when they did uh the alice in chains tribute and they did that yeah. phenomenal version of wood and it would be uh it, it would be really interesting if 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 their next garage album was an acoustic album because again you know you you were talking um a few moments ago about the limitations of playing uh, music that is as relentless as some of their stuff particularly when you get to their age i mean mm -hmm. it's it's i i love the stones they're they're a phenomenal band and i've never been disappointed when I've seen them live, but uh, I, I'm guessing that that stuff is technically not as demanding as Metallica's stuff. Sure, and yeah. So if we if we want to still be seeing Metallica in 10, 15, 20 years time, and I do because I'm really mm -hmm. interested in what they come up with, it's not realistic to expect that they could be playing thrash metal <laughs> when they're <laughs> in their 70s. And I don't think yeah. I'd want them to be, play, be playing thrash metal because it would yeah. always be... I remember seeing... Um, I saw David Lee Roth in 1988, and it was a fantastic show. It's one of my very favorite shows that I've ever seen. And then I made the terrible, terrible mistake of then seeing him again about <laughs> 15 years later. And it was like seeing a wounded lion, you know, a, 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 someone who'd once been king of the pack, and now he's and now he's not anymore. And I don't, I don't want to see Metallica doing that. I don't want to. I love Kiss. Kiss were everything to me. And and uh, if you put a gun to my head and said, who are your favorite band, I would still say Kiss. But I don't want to see Metallica turn into what Kiss have turned into. Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's embarrassing to me as a fan to see Paul Stanley being unable to, to sing on stage. And I think, just don't do it. Just do something else, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, right? Do the painting, or or sing some songs that are within your um, within your technical yeah. reach. And I don't want to see a seventy-year-old James Hetfield being a pale imitation of his current self. So, yeah. if they can do acoustic stuff, which they do brilliantly, I mean, the, the reaction to the Alice in Chains cover of last night, um, everyone loves it. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it's hard to screw up with it with an Alice in Chains song because you're working sure yeah with a great song yeah yeah um, Alice in Chains are another band as far as I'm concerned who 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 put barely a foot wrong so you're working with the best and mm -hmm. you could say oh well it's it was an obvious choice it was a hit single they still did it brilliantly James yeah. is singing 
um, remarkably well. And um, w one of the things that I've noticed about um, watching footage of the, um, the Hardwired tour is, ha is how well they're playing. I I'd, I'd say musically, Agreed. this is actually, this is, I think this is the finest um, tour that they've done um, since Robert's been in the band from a, from a musical point of view, from a vocal point 100%. of view. One hundred percent. It's it's yeah. You know, they're just getting better, and so you know, let's see them capitalize on that by playing stuff that was is technically within their grasp and is still interesting because, frankly, if you wanna, if you want thrash Metallica, um, then go and listen to and watch Seattle '89. Because it's ne it's never gonna yeah. get better. It's yeah. simply you know that yeah. is as far as I'm concerned the greatest heavy metal show that's ever been yeah. recorded. It's fantastic. Seattle. Yeah, that is a masterclass in how to do this music. Yeah, and and they can't do that again because they're not the same age. They're not sure. Yeah, and it, I'm not even sure that they want to be that band anymore. And that's why I think though they do all these different projects because it creates, um, you know, the, there's a verse if you can be versatile, be versatile. And I think there's a reason why, I mean, I think there's other reasons too, but I think that's a big reason why Slayer has retired, you know, not that they're not going to go on and do other stuff, obviously, but uh, I think, and I think there were other factors, but I think that's part of it is that, you know, it, we've done it for this long. We've done, we've, they definitely have maxed out their sound in terms of what they are willing to do artistically and musically. So the, and it's hard to be in a band and tour and play that kind of music, especially as you get older. So let's just gracefully bow out, you know? And I think yeah. with Metallica though, there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more to work with because, you know, you have the, the, the thrash stuff is just one of many components. And I think that's what makes a song like, um, uh, spit out the bone. So special too, is that because they, they, it, if they had tried to do Master Puppets in 1996 instead of doing Load, it would not have worked. If they tried to do Master Puppets today in 2020, it still would not work. But what does work is when they take that old school energy and mentality and bottle it into one or two songs. You know, yeah. that's why Spit Out the Bone works because they can take it and bottle it into this beautifully constructed song uh, that is very old school in many ways. But you're not getting a full album of that. The album Hardwired Self Destruct still taking you on this roller coaster and this journey. You know, there's you can hear parts from Load and Reload on. You can hear parts of the Black Album on. You can hear it's just kind of a combination of everything that they've done. And now, I, I with the acoustic stuff, I agree they do it brilliantly. And uh, I've said it before. It's fine that you said it because I, I've said it before. I think the World Wire Tour is the you can make an argument it's the best that they've sounded. I think it's definitely the best that they've sounded in years. Um, and I agree with these, at least since Robert has been in the band and they are just firing on all cylinders, playing super tight, um, kind of just letting their wings fly and branching out and trying all this new stuff like S and M two and, um, uh, all the acoustic stuff and doing these funky covers and their arrangements are just amazing. Like the, I, I would have never in a million years, thought I wanted to hear James Hetfield cover Eddie money. And I have gone back to listen to that acoustic cover multiple times. It's brilliant. And, yeah. or, you know, like I, I would never thought that I, I love the Beatles, 
I would never thought that James Hatfield doing in my life would be something that would he he'd be able to honestly and earnestly pull off. And he does, including the high note at the end. Like he's killing it with his voice and the arrangements. And I I 100% agree there. I think the band is um, they're they're sort of having a second coming in a way in terms of I think creativity and just um, playing so tight together as a band. They are, yeah. And uh, uh, um, one of the songs that I've um, returned to a lot over the past year or so um, is Whiskey in the Jar. When they when they first um, put that out on uh, Garage Inc., I, I wasn't too... It's never been one of my favourite Thin Lizzy songs. It's not a song that means yeah. anything to me particularly. And I didn't think that the studio version of it was was that remarkable. But they did a version of it. They played it in Ireland. On, yeah, um, Wired, and um, they put that on YouTube. And inevitably, if you play whiskey in the jar in Ireland, it's going to be special. And they do such a good performance of it. And it totally, it, it's it's now for me the definitive version of that song. Yeah. And at the end, I think um, James looks to the heavens and says, "Thank you, Phil." You know, acknowledging mm-hmm. the debt that they owe Phil Linnet. And um, yeah, as you say, they they just seem. Um, really comfortable with that stuff now. They seem to have reached yes. the point where where they are comfortable with each other. They're comfortable with their legacy. They're comfortable with with their limitations. I guess you, you mm-hmm. could say um, they're not they're not uh, they're not striving for anything they can't do. And and they're revealing, particularly as and and you've you've talked about um, the the acoustic stuff and particularly what James can do. Um, they are revealing aspects of of themselves now that that were very well hidden before. Yeah, and that that's fascinating. I mean, that yeah. that really gives me hope that we will have a Metallica in in ten years' time, um, which might, as as you and I have both said, it might be very different from the one that we've known. And if if once in a while, if they can pull out um, a spit out the bone, then brilliant. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. If you don't like some, then I don't want to be your friend. And again, <laughs> um, using song Metallica songs for the book, that was a really easy pick because yeah. I remember um, on on the day that uh, Hardwired came out, or maybe it was the day before, and they were they were uploading all the songs to to YouTube one at a time. And when I heard that, I was like, "Whoa!" Yeah. And 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 I remember uh, so many people at the time were saying, "Oh yeah, can't wait to hear this live." And then Metallica, bastards that they are, they made us all wait a year. It yeah. was a year out the bone in the set list. And I think everyone, including myself, had given up. Everyone was like, okay, well, this song is too fast. They're too old. They can't play yeah. it. And then they play it, and it was phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I love that song. It's uh, yeah. you, There's lots of hardwired that is very good, but that really, really is a phenomenal song. So I'm curious what sort of led you from fan to writer and then ultimately uh, this book. The thing that led me to um, writer was actually only sort of uh, indirectly connected with rock and roll. Um, uh, Do you know that there's a a comedy sci-fi series of books called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Sure, yeah. and I read the first one of those when I was really young, like eight or nine or something. And I thought, and that, uh, it's such a beautifully written book that I thought 
I, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be a writer. And I was, um, many years later, I was uh, fortunate enough to meet Douglas Adams, who, who wrote those books. I met him backstage at a Pink Floyd show. And um, oh, wow. I completely ignored Pink Floyd. And I was <laughs> rolling at the feet of Douglas Adams going, oh, you're phenomenal. You're the reason why I wanted to be blah, blah, blah. And you're great. And, um, <laughs> and he was a great guy. He was about eight feet tall. And he spoke exactly as he wrote in these really elegantly constructed sentences. And so I was chatting to him. And after a few minutes, he broke off and he said, who are you? And I'm like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And, um, uh, and so Douglas Adams really made me want to be a writer. And then um, growing up, um, my parents um, exposed me to uh, Pink Floyd. And so I was listening to the Floyd from when I was really, really young. Um, uh, you know, what, some of my earliest memories are, are listening to Dark Side of the Moon when I was yeah. really like six years old or something. And I got, um, uh, when I was about... 13 or 14, I think I got involved in um, co-editing a Pink Floyd fanzine, um, which ran for about 10 years and was actually very successful. And then that kind of parlayed into writing about uh, rock and roll more generally. Um, mm. And I worked on the, uh, the, um, the, the Rough Guide to Rock and a few other rock encyclopedias. And I did a book about the Floyd. Um, and, and that's kind of... Um, when when people ask my wife, what does your husband do for a living? Um, she he sits on his ass and writes about the Rolling Stones. And that, that's how she sums up what I've done for the past 20 years. And it's kind of at some point I'm going to have to get a real job. Um, but the, the, the metal book, um, the, the 666 songs book, um, which is my latest one, that's something that I've wanted to do for... Um, about 10 years and um, I've been putting I've been putting together material um, for it for that long um, and the weird thing is that I was encountering a lot of resistance from publishers um, hmm. publishers that I've worked with successfully in other contexts um, what I would get told over and over is this is too niche and it's so strange that we could be at this point in musical history and I could right. be told book that um features someone like metallica is too niche and wow. um it's like okay well it's it's a pretty bloody huge niche because <laughs> acdc and led zeppelin all of whom are really well represented in the book you know you're talking about people who aren't necessarily going to be played on top 40 radio but yeah. they're gonna if if, if you want to um sell out a stadium in south america or if you want to sell a T-shirt in Iceland, mm -hmm. um, or if you want to sell a book, in my case, um, then if you want to sell it anywhere in the world, put ACDC or Led Zeppelin or Metallica. In sure, it, yeah. Buy it. But then, but but there's this kind of weird um, elitism, mm. and it, it's kind of um, pitchfork-esque mentality that. And again, it, it comes back to what you were saying earlier about Metallica being so popular. Um, so on the one hand, people who don't get it think it's too niche and they just think, oh, it's heavy metal. Like, you mm. know, who, who other than a bunch of spotty 14-year-olds is interested in that? Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, you've got people who are saying, no, it's too popular. And, you know, <laughs> the, the Black Album can't be any good because 100 million people have bought it. 
and, uh, and I, I kind of fell halfway between that. So um, I uh, I thought, oh, well, screw it. I'll just write the book. And my wife, who has got no interest in heavy metal whatsoever, <laughs> she very kindly designed it. And we thought, oh, well, we'll just put it, put it out ourselves. And then fortunately, um, a British publisher at the last minute came in and said, oh, no, no, we'll take a chance on this book. And they published it. And it's it's been pretty well received so far, I'm happy awesome. to say. Awesome. It's funny, though, how it's still viewed, you know, after, like you said, after all these years, after all these success stories from, you know, it, you know, obviously there's only a handful of Metallicas and Zeppelins and, uh, and bands that cross over, but there's so much popularity and so much passion and loyalty from the fan base that it, it's obviously a lot of people are just not familiar and uh, in the know. That's right, yeah. And if you look down, you know, every now and then I'll look at the, you know, the, the best-selling albums of all time or the best-selling albums in, in America, and there's a lot of heavy stuff in there. You know, if you look yeah. at the, the top 30 best-selling albums of all time, you've got the Black Album in there, mm-hmm. you've got um, uh, Appetite for Destruction, you've got Back in Black, you've got Zeppelin Four, um, and then... If if you count them as hard rock and and I and I would you know you've got the Chili Peppers as well the Chili Peppers sure. have sold a phenomenal amount of albums and these guys are all in the book so is it niche well it's niche in the sense that I've got Burzum in there it's niche in the sense that I've got Big <laughs> Flesh in there and um, yeah but then I've I have also got Back in Black and Sad but True right um, there's these are all songs that. These are also, in my view, you need in your life. <laughs> but that's a great gateway book, too, right? If somebody picks up this book and they're like, all right, I'm a big Metallica fan, I'm a big Zeppelin fan, I want to read those sections. But they're like, hey, who's who's this band? And then before you know it, they're checking out some obscure death metal band or hardcore band or, you know, whatever. And it, it, a, band, a book like yours can be a great gateway for so I, many I people. So, yeah. I really hope so. So one of the things that I tried to do was um, try and avoid really, really obvious songs. So, um, excuse me, I'm going to clear my throat. So I do apologize. (laughs) Um, I didn't want to put in Enter Sandman. I didn't want to put in Paranoid by Black Sabbath or Stairway to Heaven or Smells Like Teen Spirit because there's really no point in telling people that these are classic songs because we we know they're classic songs. We hear them all. Even if you... I mean, um, I hate Hotel California. Um, and one of the reasons why I hate Hotel California is because I've been forced to listen to it so much, so many times over the years against <laughs> my will. Um, and, it, and it made me, for a long time, hate the Eagles. The Eagles have actually done some great stuff. Um, and uh, But I grew to loathe them because of uh, Hotel <laughs> California. And I'm sure there are people out there who feel that way about Metallica because they just think, Oh, please, I, I cannot hear Enter Sandman yeah. again. If I hear Exit Light one more time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, one of the things that I tried to do with the book was was I didn't want to be really obscure and, and just put in, you know, some something that had been on a B-side of a single in Thailand in 1985. <laughs> right, you know? yeah. I didn't yeah. be elitist like that, but... Um, uh, a, a British magazine who reviewed my book um, and they actually gave it a, a very nice review and I'm very grateful. Um, and they said, where the hell is creeping death? You know, how can you write a book about, um, 
heavy metal and you haven't got creeping death in it because i put fade to black in instead and um it's because i didn't always want to go for the obvious choices as yeah. it happened i also happened to think that on ride the lightning that that fade to black is um the better song um for me creeping death um came to life in concert i could i could listen to live versions of creeping death from now until the day i die and the 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 studio version to me and i guess this um this kind of plays into what you and i were talking about earlier about coming into metallica's career later on and then working backwards right so if the if the first version of creeping death that you hear is a live version and then you go back to the studio original you think well certainly i think it's not as good if if i'm if i want to listen to creeping death i'll listen to well just just today actually i was listening to um the version from Nimes, um that that french show that they did in 2009 i think right um, yeah on, on the magnetic tour and um that's what i want to listen to because it's phenomenal so um when i was putting the book together i was very conscious that i didn't want to do a book where it's 666 songs i didn't want people to know what all those 666 songs were even sure. before they the cover i want them to think oh that's yeah that's a surprise or even better that's a song i don't know i'll go i'll go and check it out because right. in the same way as Lars Ulrich at the age of whatever the hell age he is now is still going, still telling us that we should be listening to some, you know, obscure British single from 1980. <laughs> yeah. He's a fan and he wants to communicate his love of the music to other people. Um, and I feel the same way. I feel really, as you say, I'm passionate about heavy metal. Mm. And um, if I hear a great song, um, like like this song uh there's a band called septic flesh in my book i only know them because I, I was looking up i wanted to make sure that um that the international community was well represented so i actually googled metal from greece so i was thinking i wonder <laughs> if Greece yeah. produced any good heavy metal bands yeah. and it has used this band called septic flesh who were great so go and check them out it doesn't mean that you can't also listen to um enter sandman i you know right. I this yeah song. Yeah, I, I, I am not one of those people who's got bored of listening to it. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's it's thirty years later, and I still, I still love that song. It's um, funny because I will, you know, the the Black Album is, uh, you know, as I said before, the first Metallica album I ever had. So I will always have a special spot in my heart for it. It will always be in my top two or three favorite Metallica albums. But it's funny because I've listened to it so many times that I don't listen to it much these days. And when I do go back to it, I skip Inter Sandman and I'll even skip, you know, like Sad But True and stuff. I'll go to like, you know, the My Friend of Misery and The God That Failed and some of those deeper tracks. But when I do hear Inter Sandman, when I do hear Sad But True, whether it's live or the studio version, I'm like, damn, these songs are really, really great. Like they just sound great. They're well written. It, they're just perfect songs and it's it yeah. and i'll never get tired of hearing uh, uh well i shouldn't say never I'll, i rarely get tired of hearing perfect songs you know it's the same thing with like a band like guns and roses i'll I, i'll listen to appetite for destruction if i put it on right now i'm probably skipping welcome to the jungle so i can get to it so easy i'd rather listen to that song but when i hear welcome to the jungle i'm like damn that's a great song and when i see them live 
if Metallica does not play Inter Salmon or Guns N' Roses does not play Welcome to the Jungle, it just feels like something's missing, right? You're like, I, I want to hear the deep cuts, but I also want to hear that. <laughs> I agree with you on all counts. There's, there's, uh, it's funny what you're saying about not listening to the Black Album too often, and and I, um, I think I kind of burned out on it a while for a while, where, yeah. where an album becomes so much part of your consciousness that you think I actually don't need to listen to this anymore. Yeah. And then earlier this year I was in the car and I thought, I, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to put that on. And, uh, and I listened to it from start to finish. And I thought this is sensational. And um, uh, it, 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 it sounds weird to be saying this after 30 years. Um, but uh Kirk's solo on Unforgiven, I, I think that's the, the, the pinnacle of, of him as a guitarist. And, but th- that was like an epiphany that I had in 2020 about an album that came out <laughs> in 1990. It, it's, uh, it, I, I, I think um, I'd sort of got it, got it into my head that, oh, you know, the Unforgiven, it's one of the, the ballads and it's going to be a bit dreary and, do I actually need to spend six minutes of my life listening to it? Well, I do because it's a phenomenal, phenomenal <laughs> it's one of the very greatest guitar solos that I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, it's it's, it, it, it's fantastic. And um, and as you say, talking about Enter Sandman, and you, you you describe it as a perfect song, and I think you're right. And a really good example of that. There's um, a British um, TV show called Later with Jules Holland. And it's a very eclectic show. So they'll have um, a whole ban- bunch of uh, bands on it who have no connection musically or any, any in any other way with each other. Mm-hmm. And they had Metallica on it, I think, um, around the time that Death Magnetic came out. And they closed the show out by playing Sandman. And um, the camera panned around all the other musical guests um, in the studio and I have a feeling that Kings of Leon might have been on and then there were some other up-and-coming artists and like indie acts and um, folk acts and whatever certainly not hard rock acts of any description and every one of them was all mouthing along the words to enter mm-hmm. Sandman because it's mm-hmm. it's it's a song that totally has transcended um, the, the genre and again I think that's um, it's incredible. It's remarkable to think that that Metallica did that. Um, I know. It, it, coming coming from where they came from, and from and really being this scrappy band that had to fight their corner against glam metal and hair metal mm-hmm. and all that stuff. All of which, I, as it happens, I loved because you know I grew up with Kiss. So sure. when Motley came along, and even when Poison came along, I'm like, "Well, this stuff is great." Um, <laughs> I still defend quite a lot of that today. I still love Motley today, um, and it's so it's so strange. And I, I think this is one of the areas where Metallica really don't get enough credit. It's so strange that they pretty much doggedly stuck to their guns yeah. and became biggest band out of all uh you know them and guns and roses um mm-hmm. they they are the, the the biggest they're they're the um they're the zeppelins of of our generation sure um, and i we're, we're lucky to have them you know i i would love to have seen led zeppelin you know i was too young totally. and we weren't born 
Um, <laughs> yeah. And now we have the opportunity to see Guns and Roses and yeah. Metallica. You know, how lucky are we that we yeah. that we that we exist, that we live at this time where we get the opportunity to to see those guys. So a few things. One, I, I, you're. It's almost as if you're in my head, Bruno. I. 100% agree with you about the unforget. I've said it before. It's my favorite Kirk Hammett solo, period. Um, and two, I I just think that, um, I, I again, my thought last night, I was so excited about the Unforgiven. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I, I know what I was going to say. I, I, I would give, I agree with you about GNR and Metallica, but I'd give way more credit to Metallica because when you look at, gnr well let me let me rephrase the thing i think is amazing about guns and roses is that the impact that they made in such a short amount of time like they really only have three studio albums there they have the covers album they have you know the um lies ep but they only really did like three full-length studio albums of original material and they did that in a what a f- four year span, five year span, and they are still recognized as one of the all time greats. I find that completely fascinating and amazing. On the flip side of that, I find what Metallica has done to be even more impressive because they have had that impact now for decades, and they can release an album like Hardwired to Self Destruct that is still relevant. It's still top in the charts. It's still, um, people are still talking about it. They're still selling out stadiums and they're selling out stadiums, not just on the strength of the black album and master puppets. They're selling it out on the strength of their entire catalog. And the fact that they can do the world wire tour in stadiums and arenas and come out and play two new songs right off the bat, like do hardwired, then Atlas rise. And then a couple songs later, throw in another one on the set. Then a couple of, and they're doing four to six new songs a night and people are not getting up and walking out and going to the bathroom and getting beers. Like people are there present engaged. It, it, it's still really quite amazing. The longevity and the relevancy that they've had. It is. And, um, and one of the interesting things is, um, that on that uh, on the on the uh, wire tour, they've been pulling out stuff from St. Anger, and yeah. phenomenal. And I don't I don't love I don't love St. Anger. I think you know I think it's um I think it's an interesting album. It, it's it's nowhere near um, my favorite, but um but but the the songs on it they're kind of clunky and maybe they don't work on 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 the album. But when they when they play them live now. They're turning in, into these whole different things. Um, sure. Even, um, you, you know, as you say, they've remained relevant and people are still talking about them. Um, and, and people now, pe- people will rewrite history and they'll say, St. Anger was terrible and, and we all knew it and it was, it was a disaster and the snare drum sound was appalling and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and what the hell they, were they doing? Well, what the hell they were doing was that album went to number one. And yeah. then I think it played at number one for a second week. And I, I I think, I'd have to look it up to be sure, I think St. Anger went platinum in like a month or something, yeah. or, or, or a matter of weeks or something. Yeah. So if we're talking about that as some great mistake and failure, yeah. Uh, 
that's a that's a pretty damn good failure. If you can hold <laughs> yeah. a number one album that goes platinum, yeah. and then 17 years later, or how, 15, 16, 17 years later, you can pull out those songs in concert, and people are going, wow, that's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was was it as big a misstep as people say? I don't think it was. I think I think they knew exactly what they were doing. I agree, and it's funny you say it because uh, now you look at you know what they did with All Within My Hands. It's like a regular live staple now, just d- rearranged and acoustic, but it got a whole new life. And their whole their whole charity foundation is named after it. You know, so it's like they're still carrying. They they will. As much as they look forward, they always look back and they recognize each part. And it's hard to call an album a flop, like you said, when it's sold millions of albums worldwide, debuted at number one, won a Grammy Award. Not that those are the end-all, be-all, but if that's your flop, if that's your career low point, yeah. I mean, I guess you could say Lulu, but that's a very that's more of a Lulu record in my eyes. That's a very much more niche thing. Um than like a proper Metallica release. And so if that's your flop, if that's your low point, then you've had one hell of a career. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would, and again, I, I, I'm not here to change anyone's mind about Lulu. But, um, yeah, we were talking about Guns N' Roses just now. And I love Guns yeah. N' Roses. Um, you know, I was exactly the right age when, when Appetite came out. And I do remember, you know, you, you're, you're talking about um, they achieved so much in such a short space of time. And I can tell you that as a kid at the time, waiting at the, the, the gap between GNR Lies, which was, uh, I think, the end of 88, um, to um, Use Your Illusion, that's less than three years from Lies to Illusion. But I can tell you those three years were agonizing. <laughs> because it, yeah. it wait to hear what guns were coming up with yeah uh, and um i I've, I've forgotten what i was going to say i'm sure it was something very erudite to say about <laughs> me and I what it was what i was going to say oh my goodness <laughs> we'll circle back <laughs> i'm sure it was very in whatever i was going to say was very incisive and would have totally lifted the scales on what everyone thought about lulu <laughs> I was going to say um, that as much of a failure as Lulu was, I would I would personally rather listen to that than Chinese Democracy, and I say that as a Guns N' Roses fan, and I say that as a as a fan of Axel as well. Um, I think I think Chinese Democracy is a mess and 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 near near unlistenable, and um, Lulu is also kind of unlistenable but in an interesting way, <laughs> whereas. Chinese democracy is just a mess in a, I, I really wish he hadn't done that one. I definitely agree that it's an interesting listen. To get back to the book for a moment before we start wrapping up, um, it, the what you said before uh, it was my initial reaction when I saw the Metallica songs. I said, I was like, none of these are obvious. Some of them are standards, like you have Sad But True and Fade to Black, and uh, but I liked that they were not the most obvious choice. And I also liked that you showed uh, them throughout their career. It would, I think it would have been easy to do a metal book and just go in one of two directions. You either just go with the hits or you just play like the, you know, 
I'm metal true and go with like the first four or five albums. But there's I I like seeing stuff from the eighties, the nineties, the two thousands. There's they're represented throughout their entire career, which I thought was really interesting as well. Yeah. One of the things that I really um despise is when people say that's not metal. Um that's it's it's one of the most tedious arguments and it, and it will never die for as long as we have sites like blabbermouth and i love blabbermouth and uh, and and metal sucks and all those things and and um where people say well that's not true metal um and one of the points that i make in the book is that if if you if you want to talk about um if, if you were writing a book like i have and you're only going to write about true metal the stuff that declares itself to be heavy metal then you're pretty much writing about Judas Priest, Man of War, Saxon, and nothing else. You're, you're not going to write anything else. And that, to me, would be a really boring, boring book. Um, not because those bands are not great, although sure. Man of War, I would personally not fly a flag for Man of War, but <laughs> people would, and who am I to take that away from them? Um, but how how one dimensional and tedious would that be if you if you if you only listened to that kind of uh, in Britain they would call it meat and potatoes metal where it's just like <laughs> yes we've got our swords in one hand and we've got our guitars in the other and we're going to write songs about Vikings and uh, and and dwarves you know what I mean mm-hmm. it would be very very boring and so for that reason when people um, talk about Metallica selling out with the Black Album and, you know, oh, they became a pop album with the Black Album. No, they didn't. What, yeah. what they became was a popular band. And right. if, if that album had flopped, um, then all the people who, who, uh, who, don't, who, who profess to not like it, they would, they would all be calling that album a classic. There's absolutely no... I remember Agreed. hearing Bad But True for the first time. And um, it was uh, Sebastian Bach, bless him. Uh, who doesn't love Sebastian? You, you, you can hate Skid Row and you can still love Sebastian, as far as I'm concerned. Um, he was presenting some radio show in Britain, and uh, it would have been, I think, maybe the, the day before the Black Album came out, and he played Sad But True, and he was going nuts about it. And um, there, there's no way, you can't, you can't tell me that Sad But True is Metallica Goes Pop. It isn't. It isn't at all. Um, it's so heavy. It is. It is. Yeah. And so it was. It was a natural choice for my book. And um, so, so they were still doing that. But but metal has got all these interesting um, facets and colours to me. So totally. in my book, um, Slayer have got thirteen songs, and Black Sabbath have got thirteen songs, and uh, and I'll, I'll stand behind all of them. And Metallica have got twelve, and ACDC have got ten. Um, so all of those acts that you would expect are very well represented, and I, and I'm I'm it's very kind of you to say that they're not the obvious choices because that was exactly my intention. But then I've also put some people in the book that you wouldn't necessarily expect. I've got Run DMC in there. I've got Jay Z. I've even got the Osmonds in there um, because I don't want to, as a, as a reader, it doesn't interest me to read a book that just tells me something I already know. I, I think if I, if I picked up a book about 
rock music and it told me that Dark Side of the Moon and Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band were the greatest albums of all time, I'd put that book straight back on the shelf because I'm not interested <laughs> in being told again that Dark yeah. Side and Sgt Pepper are great songs. Right. If you tell me that, um, that the Metallica song that I should listen to is Bleeding Me, which is one of the songs that I put in the book. Which I but, loved that you chose that one. I think that is... Uh, I, I know it's a fan favorite of a lot of people, but I think that's uh, to people who maybe don't pay mind to the load reload air. I think that's one of the most underrated songs in their entire catalog. Yeah. It's even, I think it's even underrated by the band because I remember uh, in, in the book, I quote James as saying um, that they took it out of the um, set because it was going, it was going down badly. The fans, the fans at the time, didn't like it in concert you know it's a it's a yeah. long it's a slow song that that i guess is not what people were going to metallica shows in 96 for um but there was another interesting quote from him where he was actually talking about um the other members of the band not really grasping what he was saying you know that he he was literally putting his his uh, bearing his soul on that song and saying i'm in trouble i'm you know, I'm paraphrasing here massively, but, but essentially saying, I am bleeding, I'm in trouble. And that mm. then comes to a head in, in uh, 2002 or whenever it was when he went right. into rehab. Yeah. Um, and he was saying that the other members of the band didn't get it. So it's taken a very, very long time for that song to um, achieve the, the status that I, that I think it deserves and, and which it seems now as you say, I, I think now it's got it. It is a fan favorite. They, you know, they are playing it at their acoustic shows. I don't know if they've sure. actually. I can't remember if they've actually pulled it out on the on the wire tour. I have a feeling they haven't. I, I don't think they've, with the exception of the acoustic show, uh, at the first Helping Hands. I don't think that they have played it live in many years. I would I would say, um, the. I would say perhaps one of the latest that's possible. It might've, might've been the St. Anger tour. Actually. I don't even know if it was played on the world's magnetic tour. I know it definitely has not been played on the world wire tour. So it, and it, and on those two previous tours, if it was played, I'd have to look it up. But if it was played, it was played sparingly. I, I, they played it a decent amount in the nineties. I feel like when they were touring behind load and reload and, you know, from like, you know, 97, 98, uh, 99, you know, with it being a part of the SNM project, the first one, but uh, uh, since the nineties, it really, the, it's really died out with the amount of times they played it live. And I know I, I, I speak to a lot of people who actually would like to see more load reload stuff in the, in the live set, just in general. And it's kind of fine that they, uh, I, I think it's just a mental state that they're in where they're more into playing some of the more traditional stuff some of the more heavier stuff some of the more groove oriented stuff than perhaps you know like hero of the day or whatever but those are there's so many massively popular songs and great deep cuts that they just like stay away from these days in the live setting you know i think hero of the day is one of the most beautiful songs that they've done but i think it's interesting that um um particularly in light of 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 their involvement in the um in the alice in chains tribute show um when when Load came out, uh, I was a massive Alice fan. I, I adored yeah. that band. And um, when 
when Load came out, and pe- a lot of people were, were talking about the the kind of Southern rock influence on that, and um, not not being American, that's not really something I can speak on with a great deal of authority. But to me, it, it, to me, it seemed very obvious that when they were putting Load together, that they, like lots of their contemporaries, certainly you know people like Slash. Um, that everyone was was using Dirt, the Alice in Chains album, as their template for, oh, this is what we do now. And um, mm-hmm. Alice in Chains, um, to me, uh, 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 th- there's lots of bands from that era that I love. Soundgarden, I thought, were phenomenal. Um, and uh, Pearl Jam, a lot of their stuff is great. And Nirvana, I can take or leave, but obviously I appreciate how important they are. But to me that the band that had the, the 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 greatest influence on what metal was going to sound there, there were two bands for me that really changed the game post metallica and one was pantera and one was alice in chains and yeah. they those two bands it seemed to me that after that initial wave of bands who were influenced by metallica and guns so um um, Metallica and Guns both influence Alice in Chains and then Alice in Chains in turn influence these other bands mm-hmm. uh, and so it's sort of come full circle so when when they did songs like Bleeding Me when that came out I thought uh, this is a phenomenal song and also I, th- I think you've, you've written this after, lis- after many hours or evenings <laughs> of listening, to, of listening to, to an album like Dirt or even the, you know, the Tripod album they did a, a couple of years later, or even that um, uh, Jar of Flies, um, yeah. which, which is probably my favourite Alice in Chains. And, um, uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a very profitable direction for them to go in, I think, because, it, yeah. because it's a lot more... Um, soulful and 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 james can pull all that stuff off totally. and, and that's another kind of interesting thing you know that, that he's you know earlier you and i were talking about the evolution of metallica as a band but there's also the evolution of james hetfield as a person and sure. um and i still get a kick out of seeing his uh you know shows like seattle 89 where he was being obnoxious and, <laughs> and, being that, and being that kind of really aggressive in your face confrontational yeah. guy that we that we love but then to see him as a survivor now and to see him embracing uh y- you know love happiness you know yeah. that yeah. I, you he know, barely I, even I, says the f word anymore live and you go back yeah. to like you know 80s through the like the black on tour even like on the low tour Every other word between songs is like, well, you know, fuck this and fuck that and fuck, you know, that's fucking. And now it's just like, all right, guys, we're uh, all happy to be here and we love you all. And let's, (laughs) you know, I I can understand. I can understand why some people don't like that. And I can understand why some people are like, yeah, but we don't want Metallica to be this cuddly family entertainment. And it's like. And I and I get that. I really, I, 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 I truly, I, I understand why some people don't like that. But as I say, if you if you want that James Hetfield, go onto YouTube or or, or watch live shit because it because it's all there. And yeah. I would rather have. I, I want I want James Hetfield to die of old age. I don't want him to die with a shotgun. One hundred percent. Yeah. Or, 
and a bottle in his hand. You know, yeah. I want him to be happy and healthy because God knows he and Lars and the other guys in the band, they've given us so much um, that they've earned it. You know, they've, they've earned the right to do whatever mm -hmm. the fuck they want. Um, and they've earned the right to be happy and 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 to and to and to and to really do do whatever they want and do what makes them happy and if they can spread a message of um you know love and inclusiveness as james seems determined to do at every show then the world needs that mm -hmm. more than ever you know america needs it and the world generally needs it uh you know we it, it might be trite and it might be it might might not seem very metal, but a bit more love and happiness and peace and inclusivity, I think, is 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 to be applauded at this point in our history. I agree, and I think that is a beautiful way to wrap this up, Bruno. This was fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I would love to have you on. There's, I've, I I could honestly sit here and talk to you for the next four hours, uh, but. <laughs> I know it's getting late where you are, and I know uh, my I, my wife and my one year olds will not be happy if if, if daddy does that. <laughs> but the, I I hope that you can come back on soon, and we'll continue our conversation. It would absolutely be my pleasure, and I'm I'm so so grateful to you uh, for having me on the show, but also also for for doing your podcast because it's it's heartwarming and reassuring to know that there are people like you out there who will go the extra mile. And it's like, yeah, we, we as you say, we, we are, are, are passionate about this music. And it's one thing for um, to, to, to put comments on YouTube videos or to, or to write stuff on Twitter. And, and that's fine because, you know, we, we've all got busy lives, but to do what you do, um, and, you know, I know the amount of work and research an effort and enthusiasm and love that you put into into your show and god bless you man because that's what's going to keep this music alive i really appreciate that bruno and it like you said it, it's just i'm just a fan and i'm just want to i i just want to nerd out with fellow music nerds you know that's all it comes down to at the end of the day yeah, we, so we, we, we're just standing on your doorstep. Oh, <laughs> you it's that too much. Come on, we just, to give, we just want you to give some anger one more listen. Oh. Where can everybody find you online, and and perhaps more importantly, where can everybody get the book? Um, the book is pretty widely available on all the, the usual places, um, you, you know, your Barnes and Noble and Amazons. Um, I'm sure the publishers would want me to direct you to lawrenceking.com. That's Lawrence with a U, not a W. And they're the, they're the very kind people who publish the book. Um, and it's called 666 Songs to Make You Bang Your Head Until You Die. And if you're a Metallica <laughs> fan or if you're a Slayer fan or an ACDC fan or if you want to read um, my deathless thoughts about Greek metal, then really <laughs> this, is the, this is the book to, to buy yourself for Christmas. And, and I hope that you enjoy it. Love it. And where can everybody find you online? Uh, BrunoMcDonald.com or I'm lurking around on Twitter or um, the uh, the Metallicast Pod Twitter account. I'm sure be, I'll be putting uh, my little thoughts on there as well. So Perfect. I'll, I'll be lurking around. Perfect. I love interacting with everybody on Twitter, especially Facebook. 
is sort of like just necessary i feel like to promote the show and instagram i use sparingly but i really like twitter and really like interacting with you and everybody else on there so and i will include links in the episode description to everything that you just mentioned bruno thank you again this was a blast and i cannot wait to have you back for uh for an epic part two i feel like we only scratched the surface this time around thank you so much brendan and i wish you and all your listeners a very very happy christmas as well same to you thanks A huge thank you to Bruno McDonald for coming on Metallicast. We had a great conversation, I think, and I'm very much looking forward to him coming back on the show sometime sooner rather than later. I feel like we really just scratched the surface and we have so much more to talk about. So hopefully there will be a part two in the near future. Please, in the meantime, check out the links in the episode description. Follow him on social media. Check out BrunoMcDonald.com. And of course, Check out his work, including his latest 666 songs make you bang your head until you die. A guide to the monsters of rock and metal. Please follow Metallicast on social media at Metallicast Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please download, subscribe, leave a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All that stuff goes a long way for helping the podcast continue to grow. You get other great guests like Bruno McDonald on here. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen. Metal up your ass, yeah! Fans not experts.